So what is what Jesus is prescribing here is a motivation uh, to practice these things, not by a hypocrite mindset, not by selfish gain, uh, but by a love for God. And the reason why I do these things is not because I have to. It's because I want to. I don't do these things because the Holy Spirit's twisting my arm before it breaks. No, I do these things because I love Jesus and because he first loved me and he first set me free. One is self-centered. The other is God-centered. And what Jesus is doing is he's reproving the actions of these Pharisees as a mechanical outward appearance of righteousness. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite is an interesting word in the Greek. It means a play actor. It's a theatrical word, meaning someone who puts on a show by wearing a mask. It's someone who hides who they really are. And Jesus rightly said about the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus is saying to you and to me, don't be like that. Don't get to a point in your relationship with God where it becomes mechanical. You wouldn't want that with your spouse or your friends, and neither does Jesus want that for you or for me. Don't go through the motions with God. Let your relationship be based on his grace toward you and his love toward you. Let your relationship be based on love for him. So now we come to the place where Jesus shows us how to pray. How many of you here, by a show of hands, have trouble praying or even knowing how to pray? It's, it's tough. Uh, I know I do. And, and um, Jesus here is going to show us a way to pray where our prayers, get this, will always be answered. Oh, you may not get that Ferrari you've been asking for, but you will get an answer. You will get an answer. So Jesus here is going to teach us how to pray. Isn't it really cool that Jesus would teach us how to connect with God? Take advantage of this, brothers and sisters. Prayer is simply having a dialogue with God, with your best friend, with your, your father in heaven. But there's also reverence as well. No, you don't have to use King James English. And I love to talk to God about everything. I mean, even the little things, but you know what? Everything's little to him. And I've also learned to listen to him more than speak. I listen through his word. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I've learned to listen to him in life circumstance by praying and observing what he's doing. In Acts 10, God began to work through Peter by sending a vision on a sheet. And when that vision ended, members of Cornelius's household shows up at his doorstep these were obviously circumstances that God was arranging in his life. And he does so with you as well. Now, do you know the disciples never once asked Jesus how to preach, how to serve, how to do miracles? They did ask him one thing, though. Can you teach us to pray? Luke chapter 11. You see, they were so caught up in watching him in his communion with the father they looked at him and they said i want that and jesus gladly gladly teaches them i'm going to show you how see i remember when i first started in ministry years ago 
And I was training in service. I went to a school called the Horizon School of Evangelism. And I was asking my pastor how to preach, how to study the Bible, how to effectively serve others. And I remember Pastor Mike telling me, Brett, the first thing you need to do is spend focused time in prayer with the Lord. And when you do that, come back to me and I'll show you the rest. Something interesting happened though. I began to pray and then I began to teach God's word naturally. I began to serve naturally. I began to do things naturally because the Lord was, was working out of the overflow of the heart. So you see, brothers and sisters, it's prayer where God does his best work in you in order to do his best work through you. One of my favorite shows to binge watch is Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls. Bear was a former Special Forces soldier in the British Royal Marines. And in the show, he goes on these adventures where he's left in the middle of nowhere on these desert islands. He goes on these adventures in extreme conditions to survive for three days. In one episode, he was on an island and he was making a bed out of bamboo, tree branches and palm fronds. He made an A-frame, basically a frame to keep him off the ground away from the bugs or animals that would happen to come roaming into his camp. And once he built the frame, he filled it in with sort of a moss for mattress, palm fronds for a roof and a covering. And that frame allowed him to make a nice, comfortable sleeping spot. This prayer that Jesus is about to show us is like a framework or a way for you to connect with God. It's a way of praying whereby he fills the holes in your life and in your soul. And you can pray this prayer word for word, but it was never meant to be spoken mechanically, but as a way to experience communion with Jesus. So he starts off and he says in verse five and six, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your secret room and shut the door And pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Some of your Bibles might add openly, reward you openly. So he says that when you pray, now notice when he says when you pray, not if you pray. In other words, this this is not optional for the child of God. We're here to commune with him. We are here to have fellowship with him. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. Now, remember, in this culture, these Pharisees, these guys are the pros. They're the professionals. These are the Pharisees who you look to to emulate, have a relationship with God by the way they prayed. And to be like these guys meant that you arrived, brother. Their prayers were already set with these high polluting words that the common person didn't even speak. Their prayers would sound eloquent, polished, with great oration but little heart or no heart at all. They love the adoration of men when they prayed, but their heart was so far from God. In fact, you could pray the prayers they prayed, but it was such a mechanical exercise. uh, And it was basically just a way to appease God. The Pharisees designed certain prayers that you could pray for special occasions, for sicknesses, basically prescribed prayers. And they would tell you the longer you prayed the specific prescribed prayer, the more God would hear, hear you. And it was a mechanical exercise whereby you thought more like, am I praying the right way? Versus, Lord, I'm just here being honest with you and sharing my heart. Now, what if my son Miles here walked up to me 
bowed down to me and said, O holy art thou, Father, great merciful provider. Hear my plea, Father, for thine own son hungereth. Be not angry with thy servant as I appeal to you to make thine divine tacos for dinner. O holy Father, please hear the prayer of your servant as I make my appeal to you. For I did not what was pleasing in thy sight, attaining less than a satisfactory grade on my math test. (laughs) Forgive me, Father. I mean, I would look at him and go, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. I much prefer a, hey, Dad, I'll do better the next time on the math test. Would you mind making those tacos? You see, the Pharisees designated the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour's times of prayer. In other words, at nine o'clock in the morning, at noon, and three o'clock in the afternoon, they would faithfully gather in the synagogues or in the temple to offer their prayers. So on their way to the synagogue for prayer, they would stop on the street corner, blow a trumpet, and start praying so that people would notice them. It was almost like they were saying, man, I'm so excited to pray. I'm going to stand here and start praying right now before I get to the temple. You see, God's not interested in a long, drawn-out prayer with wasted words. He's not interested in how eloquent you are. He wants your heart. He wants you to be honest with him and with yourself. Don't be one of those... People also who spouts those gossip prayers. You know what I'm talking about. You know the kind. Father, I saw Katie stuffing her face with a whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts the other day. And Lord, I'm really concerned about her health. Please convict her sin of gluttony and turn her around to a healthy lifestyle the way you showed me. Charles Spurgeon once said, the person who prays a lot in public probably doesn't spend a whole lot of time praying in private. Jesus said, but when you pray, go to your room and shut the door where no one can see you. Just you and the Father. Don't make a production out of it, but do it in a secret place where it's just you and him. Do you catch what Jesus' desire is here as he says this? His desire is that he just wants you. He wants an audience of one. I think in our culture, we're so bombarded with activity, with social media, with TV shows, with video games, that we miss God trying to speak to us because there's so much clutter in our minds and our lives. And we wonder why we don't have any power over some of the sins we struggle with. We wonder why we don't have any power in some of the relationships that we have. Day after day, we walk around like zombies, just white-knuckling it, trying to hold on. But I believe it has a lot to do with not truly meeting with God in a quiet place, in the quietness of our hearts. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God used Elijah to bring the entire nation of Israel back to him. Leading up to what I call the supernatural bowl, or the showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah was in solitude, alone, with God, praying. And he was strengthened. Well, what happens? After he wins this great victory, a lady named Jezebel comes after him. And he freaks out. 
and he goes down to, I think it was Mount Nebo, or it's the same place where Moses delivered the Ten Commandments. And, he's, and the Lord says to Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And what's interesting is that God revealed himself to Elijah in an earthquake and in fire and wind. But Elijah didn't hear his voice. It was only until God spoke in a still, small voice when Elijah finally heard. Brothers and sisters, hear me today. If you really want to have a dynamic prayer life, learn to quiet yourself and get in your closet and be alone with God. David says this in Psalm 131. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's one of the shortest Psalms in the whole Bible, but probably it took him a lifetime to learn. It's in quietness and rest is when you will hear the Lord, Lord's voice. Author Jamie Buckingham once visited a dam on the Columbia River. He noted that he, uh, he noted that he'd always thought that the water spilling over the top of the dam was what provided the power that generated the turbines within. But what he didn't realize was that the water spilling over the top was just froth. That deep down, turbines and generators transformed the power of tons and tons of water into electricity quietly underneath the surface without notice. You see, this, the, you see the secret to prayer, the prayer that Jesus here is prescribing, is the place of the inner recesses of your heart where no one else can see, where the Holy Spirit generates the power in your life to have joy and peace. Oh, it's easy to put on a frothy appearance, for sure. But there's no power in that. It's the kind of prayer, that quiet prayer that works, that when the Holy Spirit comes in and works in you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. You see, the pagans in that culture would mindlessly babble repeating the same words over and over again, trying to get their God's attention, as if repeating it enough time with enough struggle and pain would get their attention. Jesus said, don't be like that, because your Father knows what you need even before you ask. That's so comforting to me. I don't have to tell God what I need because he already knows it before it comes off my lips. You ever told God your situation when you pray? So, Lord, you know, I was driving down the street the other day and this car ran into me. And, Lord, I just want you to know I've got this uh, insurance bill, you know, and I got to pay it. And, you know, I just want to let you know. It's like, well, I already know all that. See, the purpose of prayer, then, here's the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to get God's will accomplished and to align my will with his will. The purpose of prayer is not to come to him so he'll grant me all my requests. The purpose of prayer is reporting for duty for whatever he wants to do. And let me say this. That's when prayer becomes a joy is when it's not about you and it's not about me. 
That's when it becomes a joy and not a burden. When I let go and choose to obey him and listen to him and yield to him and deny myself, that's when true freedom and dynamic prayer comes. Dr. Curtis Hudson once said, there is more that you can do after you pray, but there's nothing you can do until you pray. So Jesus begins to show us how to pray in the subsequent verses. Verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So here's the model prayer. And Jesus tells us to pray our Father. Now the word Father there in the Hebrew is the word Abba. You may have heard that word before, which literally means Papa or Daddy. It's a very intimate term that a child uses to address their father. Now keep in mind, in the Old Testament, God was addressed as Elohim, the strong one, El Shaddai, the mighty one, and Yahweh, the unspeakable word that meant I am that I am. And these were terms of great respect and fear. And this was an absolute shock to hear Jesus instruct them. This is how I want you to pray. Hey, Papa. Abba. Now, why did Jesus suddenly say, when you pray, call God daddy? Instead of unspeakable, omnipotent. Did God change? No, God didn't change. He changed us. For it says in John 1 12, but as many as received him, received him to them, he gave the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. You see, we're adopted. We are no, we no longer have a legal relationship with God. We have a sonship and a daughtership relationship with God. And therefore we have the right. You have the right to call him Papa. And that's how he wants you to address him. Now, some of you had abusive fathers. Some of you had absent fathers. And it's hard for you to wrap your heart around God as your Papa because of your experience. But let me assure you that I am one who had an amazing father growing up. In fact, he's sitting right back there. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Um, Sorry, those. Anyway. He, my dad, was a great, is a great dad, and I'm very blessed and fortunate to have him. But you know what? Not even he is enough to satisfy the deepest needs of my heart. He cannot fulfill that longing that I have for my heavenly father's love and approval, for his blessing and encouragement. So it doesn't matter whether you had a a lousy dad or a great dad. Either one is not enough. But you see, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And one of the benefits is he said, now I'm going to give you your real father. You see, it's very powerful when you address God as father and you embrace him as your true father by faith. You enter into a place of comfort, security, peace, love and joy that you that his desire for you is that you are just simply his beloved child. And one of the amazing benefits of the cross is that Jesus changed that relationship for you. So when you pray, address God as Abba, Daddy. And notice Jesus starts his prayer this way. Our Father. Why? I believe when I start praying with with the word Papa or Daddy, the needs that I think I have are simply met in the fact that he's my Father. That I am secure. 
that I am safe in his loving arms and that what I thought I needed is fulfilled in him already. It puts my trust in him. It restores my purpose. All of a sudden, now that I remember he's my papa, I can rest. And everything else in this prayer comes natural. And notice Jesus says, which art in heaven. So as my father, I relate to him. But because he's in heaven, I revere him. Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes 5 two: Be not rash with your mouth and let not your heart be hasty to say anything before God. For God is in heaven. You are, on, you are on earth. Therefore, let my words be few. So Solomon reminds us that we don't have to pray with lofty terminology or sanctimonious tones. Yes, we must be reverent because God is in heaven. But be, we can be real because he is our father. The next phrase, he's, Jesus says, hallowed be thy name. What does hallowed mean? Well, the word hallowed has been lost in our modern language. It means to make holy, to make separate. When Jesus instructs us to be hallowed, his name, it literally means that my attitude is, Lord, may your name be kept holy around my friends, my coworkers, my family, my wife, my kids. Make your name transcend everything I see, everything I touch, and everything I say. In other words, I'm to be concerned about his name and his reputation coloring everything in my life. There's a band that I uh, like called Red. They're kind of a hardcore Christian band. They did a cover of the song Ordinary World by Duran Duran. Now, if you're younger than 40 years old, you may not know who Duran Duran is, but they were a big pop band back in the 80s. Red made a video for that song, which the band was walking inside of a painting. And as the artist would brush the strokes, everywhere they stepped, all of a sudden it was black and white turned to color. And that's the picture. Hallowed be thy name. Everywhere I step, everything turns to cover, uh, color because his name is holy. And in a sense, that's our prayer. Father, everywhere I step, everything I touch, make it holy, Lord. Your name holy. In fact, there's one attribute in the entire Bible whereby God is described and praised more than any other of his attributes. It's not love. It's not grace. It's not his wrath. It's not his power. It's his holiness. In Isaiah, the sixth chapter, the prophet comes face to face with God on his throne. And he sees this awesome sight. And his response was, oh boy, I am a man of unclean lips for I am undone. And the angels were flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Interesting, the angels said it three times. Have any idea why? Father, Son, and Spirit. And by the way, the Apostle John saw this same scene in the book of Revelation chapter 4. Same words, holy, holy, holy. So you mean to tell me that Isaiah and John were in the same throne room? Very interesting. Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. There's only two kinds of people. Those who are in harmony with God's purpose saying thy will be done. And those who live for themselves saying my will be done. You know, God is terrifyingly fair. If you say my will be done, he'll allow it to happen. If you say I don't want God, He will allow you to be damned. If you say, I want my way, 
He'll give you your way. We have a choice to make. We can either, as the psalmist said, be still and know that he is God. Or we can say, God, you be still and know that I am me. Jesus requires us to pray, your kingdom come. And that's the focus, his kingdom, his rule, his authority. We get caught up sometimes in building our kingdom here on this earth when we're supposed to be building his kingdom in heaven. I'm going to build my business, my career, my ministry, my identity, my social media platform, my YouTube influencers. Those things are not wrong in and of themselves. But when it becomes the focus, the main driving force in your life, then that's a problem. You see, those things that you're trying to build here on earth, they're not going to last. But when you build the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel, serving those around you, being the hands and feet of Christ, that has eternal value. Now, I remember living in the Carolinas for quite some time a few years back. Now, I'm from Southern California where it's like granola. Once you get past the fruits and the nuts, all you got left are the flakes. So... But I remember in San Diego, there was a restaurant there that we would frequent often called El Zarape. And they had the best fish tacos you would... Oh, I mean, I could still taste them. Well, a good friend of mine, Tony Fergario, and I were having a conversation one day. And he was talking about a whole bunch of fish he caught. And I said, you ever had fish tacos? He said, fish tacos? You mean you actually put fish inside of a taco shell? I said, yeah, but it's not what you think it is. He goes, I'm game. I'll try it. So we went over to his house. We actually made, you remember when we made those? We made them for the first time. He bit into that and he was like, oh, I'm hooked. Now, he bug, every time I see him, he bugs me. Hey, I, 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 I caught some fish the other day. Let, come on, let's do some fish tacos. So now he, he's always on me for that. They had never tasted anything like that before. So in a sense, we brought Southern California to South Carolina that day. We brought California, California fish tacos took root and became a mainstay at the Fregario house in South Carolina. Why do I say that? Because the kingdom's like that. We give people a taste of the world to come when we focus on heavenly ingredients in our daily lives that affect people around us. They taste the love and the forgiveness of Jesus and all of a sudden the kingdom of God has come and taken root in people's lives. We were in a sense sent as missionaries from California, Tara and I, years ago, which was our Jerusalem at that point, to bring the flavor of the Spirit of God, what we learned, to bring it here in the Carolinas. So we're to bring the kingdom of God. Wherever you at, you bring the kingdom of God at work, at the gas station, at the grocery store, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The, on earth as it is in heaven, whatever it is up there should be, should be it down here. Then Jesus goes on in verse 11 and he says, give us this day our daily bread. What does Jesus mean when he tells us to pray for our daily bread? I believe it's twofold. One is provision and the other is communion. The Jews who heard Jesus say this were alerted to the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 16. The children of Israel complained about not having any food and they moaned and whined and they blamed Moses and Aaron for it. God instructed Moses to tell the people that he would rain 
bread from heaven down for them in the morning and the evening. And he instructed Israel to gather only what they needed for that day and to not leave any left over for the morning. But guess what happened? People didn't listen. And the Bible tells us that the bread that they gathered left over bred worms and stank. And when God tells us to pray this prayer, he's telling us to be satisfied with what he's given us today. Not to go out and weigh ourselves down out of fear that our needs won't be met. So we got to store up more and store up more and store up more. Because you know what happens when you gather up more and more stuff for fear of that security? It just begins to breed worms and stink. It becomes a burden. It's no fun. So Jesus said, just be satisfied with the daily bread I've given you. Many of us have enough food in our cupboards to feed us for the next three weeks. And I believe this also applies to the Lord's table. I believe that that the communion table, the Lord's supper is mystical. Oh, I'm not saying I'm Catholic and I believe that they become the elements of Christ himself. I'm saying there's something the Holy Spirit does when we partake of the Lord's supper together as a family. So give us this day our daily bread. Lord, just, you know what, Lord, help me to be satisfied with what you've given me today. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. When Jesus instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts. He's asking so that, is he asking so that we'll be saved again? Absolutely not. Our justification happened at the cross. See Romans chapter five, verse one. This part of the prayer is to restore your fellowship with God. Your relationship with him. We never lose our salvation, but we do lose fellowship when we sin. And that's why we go through uh, confession of sin every Sunday. Jesus demonstrated this in John 13. After Peter recognized his propensity for sin, he told Jesus, you're washing my feet, but why don't you go ahead and give me a bath? I could see Jesus going, no, Peter, you're good, man. You're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. It reminds us of our salvation. And he says, when I recognize how sinful I am and I see the great lengths God went to rescue me, that I was his enemy, then I am moved with love and compassion and the bitterness that I felt towards somebody else who wronged me subsides and I, and I forgive naturally. Those who have received such forgiveness are so moved with gratitude towards God that they also eagerly for, forgive those who are debtors against them. Dale Carnegie, a famous writer and lecturer, visited Yellowstone Park where he saw a grizzly bear. The huge animal was in the center of the clearing, feeding on some discarded camp food. For several minutes, he feasted alone, and no other creature dared draw near. And after a few moments, a skunk walked through the meadow towards the food and took his place next to the grizzly. The bear didn't object, and Carnegie knew why because it would cost the bear too much to get even. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need this part of the prayer. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors because it costs us too much not to forgive. Is there someone in your life that you need to reconcile with? Is there someone who has hindered your joy and freedom from walking in the spirit of God? The one who doesn't forgive is like the one who is in bondage. It's not fair for Jesus to forgive us. It's not fair to him. 
And yet he forgave you and I totally. Realizing that, we should forgive others. It doesn't mean you have to be best buddies and best pals and have warm fuzzies, but it means you release them of the debt that they owe you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, verse 13. The word temptation doesn't mean a drawing into sin, but into testing. The word literally means testing. And although scripture records Abraham was tempted, uh, that Abraham was commanded to slay his son on the altar, it was a test from God. It wasn't a test to do evil. It was a test out of obedience. Uh, James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither, neither tempts any man with evil. God does not tempt you. What then is Jesus teaching you to pray here? Lead us not into hard testing. In other words, Jesus is saying, Lord, help me to learn, help, help me to pass this test the first time. Help me not to do the makeup exam. Help me not to be so hard-headed. Lead me not into temptation, Lord. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't the word declare that testing is good? Doesn't James say to count it all joy when you fall into various tests and trials, knowing that it produces patience? Well, why would we pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation? The answer is simple. It's humility. Which of us would stand up today and say, hey, Lord, go ahead and test me. Would you pray that? I I sure wouldn't. It causes humility in our hearts. Thus, it's humility in praying. Lead us not into temptation. But if I have prayed, Lord, lead us not into temptation, then should God take me through testing? I can embrace it joyfully, knowing that he will not test me uh, beyond what he is capable. And he's capable of everything. Jesus says, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Satan is real and we need God's protection. I once read a story of uh, George Adam Smith, a wonderful preacher and author who was on a mountain climbing tour of the Alps. And on one particular high peak, he ran, (laughs) on one particular high peak, he ran to the very precipice and looked out over Switzerland. Wish Andy Steger was here. He'd appreciate this. And suddenly a strong gust of wind came up that threatened to blow him over the edge. And from several feet away, his guide called to him, Mr. Smith! On your knees, sir. The only way you're safe up here is on your knees. So when the winds of life blow, don't stand, but get on your knees. It has been rightly said that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Jesus taught us to pray, God, protect us, lead us not into trials and testing and deliver us from the evil one. Now, I'm going to add this because it doesn't say this in the NIV or the ESV, but yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And I'm not going to bore you with all the manuscript evidence. If you look at the bottom of the live stream page, you'll see an image of of a leaflet with the Lord's Prayer. And in blue, it has, uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. If you want to know more about it, just, just, you know, message me or whatever. And that said, to end this prayer is to acknowledge that it is not my kingdom and my power and my glory, it is his. And this reminds me to put Jesus at the center of my life and fully submit to him. Jesus says in the last two verses here, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 explain his statement about his forgiveness in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Our forgiveness isn't predicated on us forgiving others. It's the result of our salvation being worked out through our hearts. If you cannot forgive someone of how they've wronged you, then there's a question or not whether you know God. Because God is a forgiving God. Jesus' statement here reflects how vital forgiveness is to him. In fact, Peter says, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, 70 times seven. And no, he's not saying 490 times. He's saying infinitely. It simply means, now, that doesn't mean you have to have warm fuzzies towards that person in your life. It simply means you're releasing of the, of the debt that they owe you so you can be released into freedom with the Lord. Louis B. Smead said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. So when I consider the work of Jesus on the cross, that he enabled you and I to know God through this prayer, I can't help but praise and worship him for who he is. This concise and potent prayer is an explosion of praise. Literally reading, for thine is the kingship and the weight and the substance, the power, the glory. It's all yours, Lord. You're the king. So be it. So when I consider God's person, he is my Abba, my Papa. His purpose, which is right, his holiness. His provision, his daily bread in my life. His pardon, that I'm forgiven and I forgive others. And his protection from temptation and the evil one. I have no other choice but to worship him. God does not need our worship. But we need to worship. And when I'm at a place where I'm saying, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. With an open heart and raised hand, suddenly I'm outside of myself and I'm lifted above my cares and my worries. One of the greatest joys that I've had in the last year was meeting Judy Whitaker. Judy is sitting right here. She was involved in Satanism. And the occult. Into some pretty heavy duty practices. But one day during when COVID first hit. Sophia invited her to church. And she came out on the porch. And she started asking me questions about Jesus. And it was like God said. Hey Brett here's a fruit basket. I just want you to stand under this tree. And just wait for it to drop. And that she made a confession of faith. She received Christ, and now she is on fire for the Lord. Why do I say that? Because her prayer life, when she was praying the other day, this came out of her heart, out of her personal time with Jesus. Judy wrote this poem, and it says this, Touched by the hand that feeds and fulfills, and relieved by an inner heavenly glow, I turn from fire and flames and earthly thrills, And follow forever my heart's spirit water flow. Created in the image of a perfect being. I'm confident in this path in which I choose to go. Guided by the perfection of an all-knowing and seeing. I find joy and eternal love in the spirit water flow. Miracle seen by my own eyes and felt in my heart. Encourage a continuation as I reap what I sow. 
An awakening within me takes place, so I start to follow the commands, the spirit, water flow. For the better, and because of only him have I have changed, emerging to righteousness from darkness and woe. From the devil to Jesus, my soul has been exchanged. All thanks and gratitude, the spirit, water, flow. Like the birds who flock and take for the sky and the wild flowers upon the grass that grow, we gather in his glory and his praise, his name on high, because nothing can stop the spirit, water, flow. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this prayer. Thank you so much for all you've done for us, for teaching us to communicate with you. And so now, as one heart, Lord, we all pray. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.